The passage we'll be looking at is in Romans 12, if you want to turn there. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And uh, again, trust that as we hear this word from God this morning, again, that it would it would be appropriate as you embark on a new year again. God is about new beginnings. His mercies are new every day, and so it's good. It's good to have those places that you might go to consider as I move forward in my life, what, what are the things that God wants me thinking about? New decisions, new areas that you might embark on. Uh, I have a friend in ministry by the name of Ron Hutchcraft, and uh, he relate, related a story regarding his son when he received a phone call from his son. His son had recently graduated from college and sensed a calling to take the gospel to Indian reservations out west, one of the most unreached people groups in North America. Now, he knew it wasn't going to be easy. In fact, his first place to sleep at night was just a little storeroom where he slept on a table so he wouldn't be snack, as he was told, for the critters on the floor. And so, again, a rough, a rough start. Now, he was there pretty much on his own, and he was just starting to try to break down some of the walls and meet some of the young tribal people. Uh, when he decided after a couple of weeks that he wanted to give mom and dad a call. I think he was looking for some encouragement. And uh, he drove a good distance to find a phone to make a call. This was before cell phones. It was in the early 90s. And uh, it was the kind of call that a parent doesn't forget. When he called, he said, Mom and Dad, I've got to tell you, I've probably never been so lonely in my whole life. In college, I had friends all around me. I had a good meal whenever I needed one. I could get money together whenever I needed it, thanks to you all, and thanks to God's provision. But here, I have none of those things at hand. To be honest, as a parent, our hearts were hurting for our son at this particular point, but almost immediately, our hearts turned from hurting to rejoicing. For he said, but I've got to tell you this. I've never had such peace in my life. I'm where I was born to be. Doing what I was born to do. Sharing the love of Christ in light of God's mercy being poured out on me. I can do nothing else. Ron's son is still out west ministering to the Indian on the Indian reservations today, some 30 years later. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. All believers are called to be set apart 
as our passage says this morning, to be holy and pleasing and acceptable to God. And it is my desire this morning as we look forward to this new year that you would be encouraged to not only live out being set apart and being holy and pleasing to God, but that you would be convinced that you can. You can be holy and pleasing to God. Read with me. Follow along with me. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Just follow along as I read. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The Word of God says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, let me ask you to look at verse 1 one more time. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, if I were to ask you to look at verse 1 and tell me, what do you think the most important word is in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12? You may be surprised to hear that a clear case can be made that the most important word in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 is the word therefore. Why? Because the word therefore refers back to all that Paul has said in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. So you might ask, so what makes that more important than what he's going to say? In a nutshell, chapters 1 through 11 is the wrapping up of all of the gospel. Every aspect of the gospel. Many would say that these chapters provide the most systematic presentation of the gospel in all of the Bible. It is also considered the primary hinge in the book of Romans, introduced by the word, therefore. You all know that saying, right? When there's therefore, ask what it's there for. We see explained in these chapters man's ruin in sin and God's perfect remedy in Christ. And it is explained, and the therefore is recognized as establishing the foundation upon which Paul makes his appeal. Paul's appeal. Verse 1 begins with, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. What Paul begins with is that what I'm about to say, this is important, what I'm about to say is in light of something that I've already said. The reason I'm going to appeal to you, the reason I'm going to urge you, I'm going to plead with you, is in light of that, in light of man's ruin in sin, and God's perfect remedy in Christ being 
shown to us in chapters 1 through 11. In light of that, therefore, this. In light of what? We'll see that in the next few words. The appeal in light of God's mercies. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God is an amazing few words that Paul uses literally to describe everything in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. By the mercies of God. Because of God's mercies, I'm going to appeal to you to do something. In light of that, therefore, this. In light of God's mercies, I'm going to ask you to do something. And it really is something. Can I say that? Paul is going to ask us to do something that is at the very heart of the spiritual life. As we walk through these two verses this morning, I want us to recognize that what Paul is going to urge the believers at Rome to do, God is going to encourage us to do as well. He's going to plead with them to live in such a way that it calls attention to God, that it calls attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that it calls attention to the Holy Spirit that lives within them. In light of God's mercies, I'm going to ask you to be all in. Believers in Rome, I'm going to ask you to be all in. And he's asking us to do the same. If Paul is going to ask them, and thereby ask us to do something in light of the mercies of God, it would seem to be imperative, would you not agree, that we know what those mercies are. So just by way of quick review, let me summarize some of those mercies that we see in chapters 1 through 11 that Paul is talking about. In light of all those mercies, I'm going to ask you to do this. God's mercy is revealed in his eternal plan that saves men from their sins and from God's wrath. God's mercy is revealed when he declares them righteous in his sight. God's mercy is revealed in giving them a clear and certain hope of glory. God's mercy is clearly seen in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for sinners. God's mercy is seen in the life of the believer due to the Spirit of God dwelling in them, and that through His Spirit working in you and me, His purposes are accomplished. Is that not amazing? And finally, that God's mercy is revealed in that He enables and empowers us to do it. God's mercy in His Spirit enables and empowers us to do what He's going to ask us to do, to serve Him. That His mercies are the motivation that lead us to serve Him out of a heart of gratitude, not out of obligation, not out of fear, but out of a heart of gratitude. If you're here this morning, 
and you are struggling in expressing your love for God, which often is reflected in our obedience to the Word of God, then Paul is appealing to you to remind yourself of his mercies. To remind yourself of God's goodness to you in salvation. Paul would not be saying to you here in that situation, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get to work. Work harder. No. No. Paul would encourage you to immerse yourself in the mercies of God. Remind yourself that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is all taken from just Romans 8. Remind yourself that you are a child of God and a joint heir with Christ. Remind yourself that the Spirit of God helps you in your weakness. Remind yourself as a child of God that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Remind yourself that you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. And remind yourself that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, in light of God's mercy to do something. To do what? Paul has a big ask. It really is. If it's in light of all of God's mercies, and you might say, Ed, why are you taking so long to tell us what Paul is going to ask us to do? <laughs> Just tell us. We can do it. Shoot straight. We got this. Right? You ready? Just a minute. Commercial break to parents. Commercial break to parents. We're going to get there, but first, one last little illustration to help us see clearly what the therefore is there for. If you're a parent, you know that it's helpful when you desire your child to act a certain way, that it is helpful when the desired behavior is preceded by a reason for that behavior, right? So motivation. What we see here is that Paul in this first verse of chapter 12, is applying what is a good parenting philosophy. As a parent, we recognize that it can be effective to give my child a reason for the behavior that I'm going to ask of them. Such as, Billy, we have guests coming over this evening. Therefore, would you go and clean up your room for mommy? Now, if you're a parent, you know that what the, is the most common question that we get from a child. When we ask them to do something, what's the most common question we get? Why? That's exactly right. So. It's good to give them motivation to do what you're asking them to do, right? Now, does that always work? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But 
it's a good reminder not to just revert to the most common parental response when our question when our child asks us why and what is that because i said so that's why and paul knows that's not the best motivation either in light of us having guests could you clean up your room paul uses this approach in asking believers in Rome, and God is using this approach in asking us to do something. Now, I'm going to tell you what he's going to ask, and most of you know what he's going to ask because you're so familiar with these verses. He's going to ask us to do something, and that something is that we are to present our bodies. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 1 still, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Based on the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, be all in, that our lives would be completely and totally and utterly placed in God's hands and be put at his disposal. Why? Because of his mercies. Many of you recognize the name William Booth. William Booth founded the Salvation Army. And when he was asked to explain the incredible effectiveness that he has had in ministry, he responded with a rather striking phrase. He said, Jesus Christ has all of them. Jesus Christ has all of them. What might it look like for Jesus Christ to have all of us? What might it look like for you to be a living, breathing sacrifice to God? We know that sacrifices are usually what? They're usually dead. <laughs> Laid on the altar, dead. God is asking us to lay ourselves on the altar, alive and breathing and wholly committed to his will. When we do that, there is something that does die. I think we understand that, don't we? We understand that our will and our thinking that we know what's best needs to die. Unlike Old Testament sacrifices, however, and this is key, you know this, you hear this over and over again because we need to hear it over and over again. Unlike Old Testament sacrifices, however, this living sacrifice is not done in order to procure God's favor. Not at all. It is done out of deep gratitude for his mercy. God loves us. He will always love us. We will always be his children as a child of God. And so we do it out of deep gratitude. John Stott helps us recognize that before we trusted Christ, before we placed our faith in Christ, our bodies in our depravity before Christ served ourselves or the enemy in some way that it was contrary 
that God had created us to live. Follow along with me as I read John Stott's statement. He says, human depravity reveals itself through our bodies. In tongues which practice deceit and lips which spread poison in mouths are full of cursing and bitterness in feet which are swift to shed blood and in eyes which look away from God. Conversely, Christian sanctity shows itself in the needs of the body. So we are to offer the different parts of our body to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in his paths, our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel, our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who have fallen, and our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed, and our eyes will look humbly and patiently toward our God. Our bodies, redeemed bodies, serve Christ. Just going out in the end, I just want to make sure that that works before I read this next statement. This sums up by one author what we've seen in presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. The Christian life is to be a daily giving over of our lives and our bodies in obedience to God, motivated by the view of God's mercy that we have, and this is crucial, motivated by the view of God's mercy that we have as we stand at the foot of the cross and see his son dying there for us. I have a sweet memory embedded in my mind as a result of seeing a good friend, Austin McCraw. Many of you know Austin McCraw. When I attended his ordination as a pastor at his church. At one point in the ceremony, Austin laid prostrate on the ground. And it was a beautiful picture, a physical picture of his total submission and his complete surrender to God's will for his life. And God calls us to the same. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, before Paul addresses specific ways we're to live out this mercy-motivated lifestyle, he emphasizes that being a recipient of God's mercy, first and foremost, first and foremost, affects our worship of God. This order is essential. Worship followed by lifestyle. Our worship of God first. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, this is the entire verse now, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we're not talking about what we're doing here this morning when we say our spiritual worship. We're talking about our lives. Paul is talking about our whole lives being an act of worship, a yielding of our entire lives to God. Simply put, the way we walk and talk 
will be the expression of our spiritual worship. So Paul calls the believers in Rome, and God calls us to go all in 100%. This approach that Paul uses in light of God's mercies, do this, present your bodies, of motivating us and encouraging us in our spiritual walk based on God's mercies can be found throughout Paul's letters. It is his normal approach to encourage us to live a certain way. In Titus, Paul wants to remind Titus and his readers just a couple of examples. He wants to remind us of what? Says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Mercy motivated conduct. In Ephesians, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, with Christ. For what purpose? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared them before us, and he has enabled us and empowered us to do them. The way we walk and talk would be the expression of our spiritual worship. Paul, having made his appeal based on the mercies, we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. It is now that Paul can begin to be more specific. He's called us to do something, to present our bodies, and now he's going to instruct us to stop doing something. Stop doing something, and that is, don't be conformed. Verse 2 begins, don't be conformed to this world. Stop allowing the influence of the world to influence the way you think and the way you live. Stop being squeezed into the world's mold. As one writer put it, stop aping the world's thinking that surrounds you. Often those in the world look for ways to stand out, don't they? They 
look for ways to draw attention to themselves. Can I say, God has the desire that we would stand out, that we would stand out as well, but in ways that may not be so popular. It's not necessarily popular to share the love of Christ with people. Some people were resisted, and especially not with the clear punishment of hell being the result of denying them. That's not popular, but it is a message people need to hear. We can acknowledge that it is far easier to join the masses than to stand alone. God calls us to stand out, to be courageous, and I mentioned this to Timo just before walking in this room, to let our little light shine. <laughs> to let our little light shine. Our little light will surely shine if we stop being conformed to this world and instead do something else. Do this instead. Be transformed, it says in our verse, right? Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Tim Keller has a wonderful quote that summarized the transformation of the renewed mind. He says, perhaps the best way to understand the renewal of your mind is to see the mind renewal as just another way to talk about viewing God's mercy and responding in spiritual worship. Let me read that again. The best way to understand the renewal of your mind is to see the mind renewal as just another way to talk about viewing God's mercy and responding in spiritual worship. We are to have our minds inflamed with the truth about Christ. Very often our minds are more filled with what God is asking us to do or not do than inflamed with the truths about Christ. In Ephesians 4.23, Paul tells us to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This probably means not just that we think true thoughts, but that the governing influence of our mind is reoriented. One's imagination is captured by Christ, who he is and what he did, fires the imagination and controls our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. I have purposely not spoken to a couple of words that are in our passage. Those words are holy and acceptable and pleasing. And in these last verses, good, acceptable, and perfect. Two words particularly stand out to me. Holy and perfect. If I were to ask you, are you holy and perfect, what might be your response? I know I would wrestle with what the persons would have asked me. Right? Sure. 
in Christ, righteous in God's eyes. But the reality of the question tends to lean towards, are, are you holy and perfect? Are you living a holy and perfect life? And, and at the beginning of my message this morning, I told you that my desire would be to convince you that you can do this. So that's why we close here. It's my desire to still convince you that you can be holy and acceptable and pleasing to God and that you can discern the will of God as you keep in view God's mercies. You can do it, this. In view of God's mercies, we can, and I might add, like last week, Aaron, we must live holy and acceptable and pleasing life to God. We can. Do you believe that? If you're not sure, let me say that Paul would not instruct the believers in Rome to do something that they cannot do. Would he? Paul would not instruct us to do something that we cannot do. Don't you think that with all the instructions regarding living godly lives, that there are many examples for us to look to? Paul is not looking for sinless messiahs. Furthermore, there is no indication that Paul is asking them to do something merely to reveal to them how sinful they are. That's not what he's doing here. He's calling them to do something, and he believes that they can do it. In view of God's mercies and empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God, you can do this. You can be holy and pleasing to God. Now, I would certainly add, not perfectly, though that word is used there. It's not perfect, but holy and pleasing to God nonetheless. Now, I would ask you to think for a moment. Are there not people that you and I know, that you and I know, people here in this church, that you look to as examples of holy and pleasing to God. We spent time at family camp recognizing folks in some way for their hearts of service to God and their holy and pleasing lives to God. When you and I examine our lives and consider to what degree they have been holy and pleasing to God, we must insert in that evaluation that we are still in process. It is a lifelong process, and this process is not measured in seconds. It's not measured in minutes. It's not measured in hours or days or months. It's measured in years. Don't Sit there and go, boy, I've had a lousy day on a Wednesday. Rats. Really good. Did okay today. Not bad today. No. Our spiritual walk and our spiritual sanctification is best to be looked back after two or three or four or five years and to say, God is doing a work in me. Kevin Dio said, we need a category 
of obedience in a category of good works that is not meritorious, not self-justifying, not flawless, and yet is genuinely and sincerely an obedience that is holy and pleasing to God. We need that category so that we do not beat ourselves up, so that we do not beat up other believers for a sin of disobedience, but rather we're looking at them and their lives. When you and I examine our lives and consider to what degree they have been holy and pleasing to God, we need a category. Westminster Catechism. You probably read that this morning, right? When you woke up? Chapter 16, Section 5. This will help us here. We cannot be and we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God. We cannot merit pardon by our works. But the next section states, this is so helpful, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unprovable, unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. Although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Is that not restful truth? Not perfect. There is weakness. But clearly pleasing, acceptable, and holy to God. As I close with this last illustration, I'm going to ask Kimbo and Ian and Mike to come. And as they come, let me share this last illustration. I'm going to use the same illustration I used earlier to make a different point. Billy, we're having guests over this evening. Therefore, would you go clean up your room for mommy? I'll be up in a bit to check on you. You can come, Bill. Now, you know as a parent, when you go to check on Billy's room and to see how he's doing, there's a measure of the fact that I could be more pleased or less pleased with how Billy is doing. Is that fair? I think that's clear. However, in your evaluation of Billy's obedience, your love for your child is not in question. 
They are your child. They will always be your child. You will always love them. You will not love them any less or more due to the measure of the cleanliness of the room. You have a category as a parent that you love it when your child obeys in any way and to whatever degree. You have a category. It's likely not going to be to your standard or be as good as you could do, but you can be so pleased. And you go in to Billy's room and you mom say, oh, thank you. Thank you for such a great job. And you go and get dad and say, dad, come see what a great job Billy did in cleaning up his room. Not perfect, but clearly an act of obedience to your request. So I encourage you. I think some of the reason for this message of encouragement that you are holy and pleasing to God is we don't want to give up. Some people get to a place where I can't, I can't do this. No, no. And that's reasons for a parent to encourage their child on where they're at and what you see in them, and what you see God do. He wants to encourage us and not rob ourselves of the joy that our Heavenly Father wants us to enjoy in our obedience to Him. Not perfect, but pleasing and acceptable to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Would you do me a favor? I'd like to lead this last song, and I'm going to ask you to stand. And the song is, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The chorus says, Oh, the wonderful cross. The wonderful cross. It bids me come and die and find that I can truly know. Say with me.